So we're um, going to start a new series today. I'm really excited. The Book of Acts. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the, the long Book of Acts. We're going to do this over the next five years. No, I'm just... <laughs> I'm just kidding. One, one time we did a series in Acts, and like toward the end, I couldn't wait for it to be over. Do you remember that? <laughs> I was like, this is the longest book ever. Um, but we're, we're just going to do maybe like a chapter at a time. And so we won't go verse by verse, or else we'll, we'll never get through it. Um, but we're going to look at chapter one today. I'm really excited about this. Uh, the book of Acts, if you, you don't know, it's, it's kind of a history book. It's, it's really what happened after Christ was risen um, and just what happened with the early Christians and the story of the Christian church. It was written by Luke, uh, who is a companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a doctor, and he's writing this to Theophilus, um, who we don't know much about other than it seems like he was a believer and the name Theophilus means, I think it means loved by God. So maybe that was a new name he was given, and he was a follower of Jesus. Um, Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke, uh, which you probably figured out. Uh, and so he, and he also gave us this, this wonderful, wonderful account of the power of God displayed in the first generation of Christians and the persecution that they experienced as well. It's kind of interesting how those two go together. Power was manifested in the midst of severe persecution. Um, so in chapter one, we still get a little bit of Jesus. He hasn't gone back into glory quite yet. He's risen from the dead. We know that he, uh, after he was raised from the dead, he spent about 50 days um, interacting with different people on different occasions. At one time, it was 500 people uh, that he was with. He ate with them. He drank with them. He uh, sat with them. He let them touch his scars. Uh, so for 50 days, that's a long time. You know, it's funny how some people say, oh, you know, the disciples just loved Jesus so much that they just had like a hallucination and they just thought that they were seeing Jesus. No, it wasn't a one-time thing. It wasn't one of them. It was hundreds and hundreds of them over the course of 50 days. So here we see in the, mid in the beginning of chapter 1 of Acts, we see the sort of the last conversation that Jesus has. Uh, some of the last words would be, you'd think, right, some of the most important words that Jesus would speak. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, one of my favorite topics. But we'll just uh, walk through, I said this a few weeks ago, we'll just walk through and then we'll circle back around, but I really am going to circle back around this time, I think. <laughs> no, I, I definitely will. Well, I'll try to run through it. We won't walk through it. We'll run through it uh, pretty quick, and then we'll come back around. Because I really want to look at uh, just a few ideas uh, in, in this chapter. There's a lot in this chapter that we could talk about. But we're going to mainly look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit and just the power of God that is promised from the Father. All right, let's get into it. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1. Verse 1, in the first book, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. A correction to what I was saying. Uh, Jesus spent 40 days interacting with them and appearing on different occasions. And then there's 10 more days from this moment of what we call the ascension to the day of Pentecost, which we'll read about in a couple weeks when we study chapter 2. Um, okay, sorry about that. 
He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, and that word staying in Greek, I guess, can, can mean actually eating with them, staying with them. It's kind of an all-encompassing word. While staying with them and eating with them and sharing life with them for these 40 days, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. In other words, you've heard me talk about this a lot. In fact, we can read about it in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14 and 15 and 16. It's all about this promised Holy Spirit that would be sent uh, from above once Jesus returns to glory. So you've heard from me, for John, speaking of John the Baptist, as we call him, who's the sort of the forerunner of Jesus, a cousin, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we know, because we have the record, 10 days to be exact. So when they had come together, they asked him, They're always kind of obsessed with this idea. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is what they all wanted because remember they were in just under incredible oppression by the Romans and just, you know, they they just wanted the Messiah to really uh, turn everything around and just put everything back in order and just kind of restore the the glory of Israel. as is promised throughout the Old Testament. But that's not quite for yet. And so Jesus redirects and says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what he wants to talk about. Here's Jesus' last words to his disciples. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, they were kind of the enemies, and to the ends of the earth, to everyone, to all nations. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, So picture in your mind, you know, Jesus is speaking these important words and and they're just hanging on his words, just watching him and and taking in these these kind of final words of, of Jesus. He was lifted up. We don't know how, but he just was lifted up. Picture that in your mind. He's just lifted up into the air. Jesus is rising up and up and up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. In other words, he got so high that eventually he was behind the clouds and could not be seen. What a cool way to exit. (laughs) I mean, that's... And they're just blown away by it says while they were gazing into heaven as he went who knows for how long they were gazing they were like did you just see that like that was crazy they're just trying to process what just happened in front of their eyes two men stood by them in white robes probably angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And that's speaking of what we call the second coming of Jesus. And the Bible talks a lot about that. Jesus himself 
talked about that and promised that he would, when he comes, he would come in power and great glory upon the clouds, and he would sort of split the skies. Yeah, when he comes again, he's not coming as a, a gentle lamb, as a meek and mild, humble man. He will come in the fullness of his glory. Um, but that's a whole other sermon, the second coming of Jesus. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem. They did what Jesus asked them to do from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, uh, they went up to the upper room, uh, just where they spent their time, where they were staying. And Peter and John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and it gives us the number of people who were there, 120 people in this upper room. These are humble beginnings. This is a small, this is a small beginning. You know, you think about three years of Jesus teaching and preaching and doing miracles, and you'd think there would have been hundreds of thousands of people that came to Christ uh, during that time. And I'm sure there was more than 120. It just happened to be that the hundred these were maybe the most serious of them, or the ones that were could get away from work or were available. We're not exactly sure, but These are small beginnings, humble beginnings, 120. But anyways, Peter says, uh, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Uh, If you don't know who Judas uh, is, he was the one who betrayed Jesus with a kiss, right? Kind of a famous story of Um, basically he went and tattletailed on Jesus and let the people who hated Jesus and wanted to kill Jesus, they, they, he let him, let them know where Jesus was, uh, for a sum of money, 30 pieces of silver. So anyways, Judas is sort of out of the picture at this point, um, and, Peter says scripture had to be fulfilled. This is actually all predicted in the Old Testament. He was numbered among us, was allotted his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. With this 30 pieces of silver, Judas bought a field. And falling headlong, which the idea is suicide here, He burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. I know, it's pretty graphic. I'm just reading the Bible. Um, (laughs) Verse 19, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. And then he gives the specific references in the Old Testament, for it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, And let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Because, you know, once uh, Judas took his life, Uh, There were 11, not 12, right? 11 disciples. And so they are coming to um, basically pick a new apostle. And it had to be somebody who was there from the very beginning, who kind of witnessed everything that Jesus did. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice and Matthias, And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show 
which one of these you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. End of the chapter. So like I said, we're going to swing back around, and we're going to kind of dig deeper into certain uh, passages that are in this kind of first section of Scripture here. Uh, starting at, we'll really start at uh, verse 4. I want to look at these ideas. So Jesus is speaking these words with them. He's staying with them. He's eating with them, sharing life with them. And he orders them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise. And we'll talk about the promise in a minute. But what does he mean by wait? Because that can sound a little confusing to us uh, when we think about waiting. We think about the DMV. We think about, I don't know, just waiting for the thing that we want at Ikea to finally come in. And, you know, we get it, or waiting for a package from Amazon. It's taking forever. Um, it's sort of a passive thing. I mean, you might check you know, check the status of your order, right? Uh, but really, it's, it's more of a passive thing. That's how we use the word waiting. But in Scripture, it's a, it's a word that you find all through Scripture, this idea of waiting on God. And sometimes it's interchanged with the word hope. Um, like those who, they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Um, I think some versions say they who hope in the Lord. What do we use outside on the, on the mural, Catherine? It's hope, yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's interchangeable with the word hope, but it has this element, it's a little deeper, it has this element of expectation, too. In other words, you're waiting with a sense of belief. You're waiting with a sense of uh, almost hunger and thirst. You know, you're fully persuaded this thing is going to happen. So Jesus is saying, go to Jerusalem and Wait there. Wait with hopeful expectation for the promise of the Father. In the Gospel of Luke, actually, um, chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus says something similar. He says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but he words it a little bit differently here. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This idea of waiting until is a theme in Scripture. Seeking God until he pours out his spirit. You see it in, um, actually, let me see if I can flip back here to... Lamentations chapter 3, yeah. Jeremiah says, Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Cry out in the night. Actually, is that what I wanted to read? No. That's a good verse, though. That's a very powerful verse. And it kind of goes with this anyways. <laughs> Maybe the Lord wanted me to read it. My eyes, this is chapter 3. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until, that's the word I was looking for, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. And also, in Isaiah 62, let's look at that one as well. Hey, this is great, not being on camera. Who cares? We can just be family. I can just be flipping pages. I can be making mistakes now. It's wonderful. Isaiah chapter 62 says this, On your walls of Jerusalem I have set watchmen all the day and all the night, and they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest Here's that word, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. 
Are you getting the idea? It's, it's this idea in Scripture of, of seeking God until he moves, until he breaks forth and brings the thing that he promised. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, go to Jerusalem and wait there for this promise, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise. So what exactly is this promise? Well, like I said, in in the Gospel of John, chapter 14 and 15 and 16, uh, Jesus talks all about this promised Holy Spirit that would come, that would be a comforter and a guide, this one that would empower the disciples, empower us to do the work of God, to do the mission of God. In so many words, Jesus was saying, you aren't ready to go out there and do the work. That's kind of radical in a way, isn't it? I mean, these guys spent three years with Jesus. I mean, it wasn't that they just watched, too. Jesus sent them out two by two. They did miracles. Um, They healed the sick. They raised the dead. I mean, they were doing amazing things. These These are the 12. These are the cream of the crop. This is Peter, James, and John. You know, these, these guys, like, they, they know what they're doing. They, they know Jesus. They were Christians. They were followers of Jesus. You think if anyone was qualified, right, to go out there and just spread the good news about Jesus, it would be, it would be these guys. But Jesus says, no. Nope, you're not ready. Go to Jerusalem And wait until you receive power from above. And they understood what it meant. They they were not confused because that's as we read, you know, they what do they do? They went to Jerusalem and they didn't just sit around and you know on hammocks and look at the sky. Like they they knew what Jesus was talking about. They went to Jerusalem and they went into that upper room and they began to pray. They began to seek God for this promise. Now, again, there's so much confusion about this baptism idea amongst Christians, different denominations, all kinds of sharp debates and everything. Um, it, 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 gets a little, it gets a little crazy, but I hope, hopefully we can just kind of get to the heart of it and, and really understand what, what Jesus is saying. I, I think that one thing I know for sure, is that the disciples in the upper room, 120 of them, they definitely had a measure of the Spirit, right? In fact, the Gospel of John says that Jesus said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. Whoa. That, this, that's happened before this. They were reading here. So they received the Holy Spirit, um, they had some measure of the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, enough where they could pray, enough where they could, well, it says in one, uh, I forgot which gospel it says, but you know, after they kind of encountered the risen Christ, they went back to Jerusalem with great joy and were worshiping God in the temple like day and night. There was so much excitement and, and joy. So, All of that shows that the power of the Holy Spirit was working in their life. So why is Jesus telling them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the baptism of the Spirit? What is he talking about? They already have the Spirit working in their life, right? This is where, you know, there's a lot of different opinions and people get confused about it. I think some people, uh, maybe it's an overly simple thing, but they say that, you know, when you become a Christian... And I believe this. When you become a Christian, you receive the Holy Spirit, right? We call that regeneration. Um, you know, you, you don't have the Spirit in you, but you make that decision. It could be a quiet thing. It might not be a dramatic, emotional thing, but something changes. You move from darkness to light. You are transferred, transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. 
you know, there, there's a change that happens. The Holy Spirit is not inside of you, and then he takes residence within you. We also call it being born again, or Jesus called it that. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, to inherit the kingdom of God. There's, it's new birth. All these things means the same thing. Regeneration, new birth, to be born again, to be indwelt by the Spirit. That's what it means to be a Christian. You can't be a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit within you. But So they have the Spirit, but Jesus is saying this other thing, this kind of special thing. You need something more. And so there are some camps, some movements that uh, will say that there is your first dose, I guess, of the Holy Spirit um, that you get at salvation, and then you get a second dose uh, later on, you know, for empowerment to do mission. And so they call it the first blessing, salvation, Holy Spirit, and then the second blessing. And I won't even name names of different denominations and all that, and men through history who you know believe that, which is fine. I think there is some truth to that. I actually do believe that there is a second blessing. I just happen to believe that there's also a third blessing, and a fourth blessing, and a fifth blessing, and a sixth blessing. It, it kind of matches our experience more, doesn't it? I mean, I, I, I can say that, yeah, I had an incredible um, awakening experience when I received Christ and, and received the Spirit in my life. And suddenly, I was a person who was prayerless, and then all of a sudden, I just couldn't stop praying. I just wanted to pray all the time. And I'm just having these conversations with God, like, constantly. And yet, a few months after that, I received a, just a special dousing of the Holy Spirit on my life that was dramatic. And there was gifts that came along with that, like speaking in other tongues, which I don't believe that everybody who's baptized in the Holy Spirit has to speak in tongues. That's a whole other conversation. But anyways, so that happened. I have that second blessing. But then a few weeks after, there was another outpouring of the Spirit. And then maybe a week later, there was another touch of God. And then a little while later, there was another baptism of the Spirit. And this is 33 years. I mean, I don't know, hundreds of times God has poured out his Spirit in my life. So I think one of the things that brings confusion about this issue is that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The three in one. Three distinct personalities in one God. And that's a mystery that we will never understand, at least in, in this life. What was that? Did somebody ring the doorbell? <laughs> okay, maybe somebody could go get the door. See who was... <laughs> or there's probably security down there. Um, oh, man, now I'm off track. Okay, Trinity, Trinity. Let's get back in, into the Trinity. Uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So how can you have the Holy Spirit in your life but need more of the Holy Spirit? It's a little confusing, right? You know, so some people almost like overly simplify and say, well, if you have the Spirit, you have the Spirit. You know, you can't have more of the Spirit. You know, what does that even mean? You know, you just, you have it or you don't have it. It's like it's in you or it's not in you, which there's a degree of truth to this. But like so many things, there's paradox and mystery, right? I want to I just point out to you the metaphors that are used often throughout Scripture regarding the Holy Spirit. Think about this. The metaphor of fire. Well, fire is something that kind of fluctuates, right? You could be a flickering flame or you could be a raging inferno. How about water as a symbol of the Holy Spirit or fountain, right? A fountain of living water or Jesus said streams of living water would flow out from, from within you, right? These streams of water. Well, water could be a fountain, could be, do you remember in high school when they used to have water fountains? I don't know if they do anymore in 
high school because of germs and stuff. But, you know, you'd, you'd be so thirsty and you'd hit the, hit the thing, the metal thing, and the, like, almost nothing would come out, this little tiny trickle. And because there were no germs in the 70s, you just like, <laughs> just sucked on that thing. <laughs> so disgusting. But it quenched your thirst, you know. But a fountain can be a trickle or it can be a bursting thing, right? It can be just a bursting, rushing water. Think about the metaphor of wind. It could be a a mighty rushing gale, or it could be barely, you can barely feel it. It's just a gentle breeze. These are the metaphors that are used. Oil can be almost nothing in the jar, right? Or it can be overflowing in the jar. It fluctuates. It changes. I know it kind of is weird, right? Because, well, is the Holy Spirit in us? You're saying he's, you know, sometimes he's little, sometimes he's big. Yes and no, okay? It's, It's a mystery, but you have to you have to kind of take everything Scripture says about the Holy Spirit and contemplate on all the different metaphors to really grasp this, to really understand it. But I will say this, that, well, let's, one of my favorite verses, Ephesians 5.18, says, be filled with the Spirit. And in the original language, it really means be being filled, be being continuously filled in other words, it's not just a one-time process. You don't, at one point in your life, like you're an empty cup and you're like, God, fill me with the Spirit. Baptize me in the Spirit. And he fills you with the Spirit. You know, and you get 100% filled and then you just stay at that 100% filling for your entire life. It doesn't work like that, right? We know that we need to be continuously regularly filled, why? Because we are continuously and regularly emptied. We leak. (laughs) So we have the Holy Spirit in us, like fire, I think is a great metaphor, but sometimes that fire burns low. And sometimes that fire burns bright. And again, I think this, doesn't this match our experience? I mean, I, I certainly can say, wow, there are times when I am like a burning fire. And then it, there are other times where it feels like it's just a little flickering candle that's going to go out any minute. It doesn't go out, but it feels that way. And I think that's, that's kind of our experience. It fluctuates. And we, we leak, we get depleted. Now, we can talk about sin and the quenching of the Spirit, and yeah, we, kind of we can do that. But aside from that, just the normal walking with God, we give away what is inside of us. So it's kind of this constant uh, refreshing or this you know, receiving from God, but then it's pouring out. Receiving from God and then pouring out, giving it away. I mean, think about Jesus in John 7 when he said, if you believe in me, streams of living water will flow out from you. Remember when Jesus touched, or uh, well, it wasn't Jesus, it was the woman with the flow of blood that came up beyond him, touched the hem of his garment, and power went out of him. Do you remember that? These are mysteries, right? What do you mean? Power went out of Jesus. So there's a, do you see this idea? You're, you're receiving fresh infillings of the Holy Spirit, but then you are giving out. However you give it, it might be your love, it might be your hospitality, it might be just listening to somebody, praying for somebody, even in your intercessions. There's a constant pouring out and there's a constant filling up. Here's an illustration that could help you to understand it. I have a coffee grinder. We have a coffee grinder. And now our daughter's home too, Maddie. So we are sharing the coffee grinder. But this coffee grinder is regularly baptized with good coffee beans. Actually, Jeff roasted his own beans 
and uh, gave me the, oh, that was good. I was, I'm waiting for more. <laughs> waiting for more. Those were really good. Those were special. But we're kind of picky. Some would call us coffee snobs. But anyways, we, you know, we baptize our grinder regularly with fresh beans. 12 ounces of coffee fills up the, the thing, you know. But it doesn't stay the same. It doesn't remain at that level because we grind the beans and we consume the coffee. We brew the coffee and consume the coffee. And so there's a need for another fresh baptism of coffee beans a little bit too frequently. It's getting expensive. But that's how it works. You don't stay at the same level. We need more. We need fresh infillings. We need a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some would come from church cultures that would uh, put it this way, a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit, a fresh touch of God. Have you been in that place where you just feel that need for a fresh infilling? And again, there's different reasons why we get to that place of depletion or emptiness. Sometimes it can be, it can be sin. It can be we quench the spirit. It can be we, um, well, if you're filled with God, but you don't give it away to anyone, you'll kind of lose it or it becomes stale, right? You, you have to kind of give what God gives to you. If you give away what comes in, then it sort of increases and becomes more. That's another sermon. But we get to that place of emptiness, don't we? Where we need that fresh touch from God. Well, how do we get it? You know, what do we do? That's what Jesus is talking about, this promise of the Father, this baptism of the Spirit, this infilling of the presence of Jesus, this, uh, you know, I think... uh, The idea of being saturated or drenched in the presence of God, drenched in the Holy Spirit. Are you drenched today? Or are you kind of like a a sponge that has been left overnight and is just kind of dry? We get like that. We need fresh outpourings. Of the Holy Spirit. But I believe that's what he's talking about. And he's saying we can't do the work without this. You can't do the work of God without the power of God that comes through waiting on God. Can't do it. What is the work to make disciples? What is the work to impact people's hearts? What is the work to go into all the world and, and, and somehow, some way, it seems like an impossible task, I get it, but somehow, some way to turn people around from their life of sin and turn them toward God. What is our mission? To reconcile people to God, right? What does the proverb say? You know, go rescue the perishing, save those who are staggering toward that. This is our mission. It is daunting. Even the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, said, who is sufficient for these things? Like, this is ridiculous. Basically, we're called to go raise the dead. We're called to go and raise spiritually dead people who have no interest at all in Jesus and somehow, through loving them, praying for them, trying to talk with them, turn them around and reconcile them to God. Listen, I don't know about you, but who can do that? I can't do that. Even the most gifted people or talented or persuasive, clever, uh, you know, the kind of people that talk other people into things, they can sell you anything. Even those people stink at the mission apart from the spirit of the living God. We need the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm not saying we can't pull somebody into church or 
get somebody to read something or try to whatever. I mean, I know there's some very gifted and charismatic type leaders. I mean, think about the cult religions, right? I mean, they seem to be successful in getting a bunch of people to come into a building and listen to a person speak and even generate a lot of money. Like, that's not, you don't need the Holy Spirit to do that. Cult religions that have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit have been doing that for thousands of years. And the same thing happens within the Christian realm. Christian realm, I don't know if it's, you know, whatever we want to call it, but there are Christian churches that can gather a lot of people and charismatic and generate a lot of money, but it doesn't mean that the Spirit is even there. The Spirit can be completely absent from that whole thing. But this is how we judge things. You know, we judge things by how big is the building, how much money comes in, how many people are there. And if all of those things are like impressive, we think, wow, look what the Spirit is doing. No, actually, if you really study church history and great revivals throughout church history and even the book of Acts and study the workings of Jesus and all the great things that God has done, you'll find that it often happens in small ways, doesn't it? Remember, we just read that a few minutes. 120 people in the upper room. I mean, what are we going to do with that? We could say, geez, Jesus wasn't very successful, was he? You know, the, 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 the great leaders today, boy, they're doing a much better job than Jesus you know, he, he just wasn't, uh, whatever, seeker-friendly enough, I guess. You know, he, he just didn't know what he was doing. He didn't understand about marketing. No, because Jesus actually said things at times that were the complete opposite of marketing. Right? You know, like when... In the, the Gospel of John... When Jesus said, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they knew what he meant, it meant to really, you had to give everything. This was like all or none. This wasn't just like, oh, follow me because it'll be fun. Enhance your life a little bit. This was like a full-blown, like you need to be a disciple to do this thing. And it says many departed from Jesus and no longer followed him. And Jesus over and over said things like, unless you carry your cross, unless you deny yourself and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. How about the rich young ruler who came up so excited? You know, like, here's a, here's a potential church person, follower of Jesus. Oh, what must I do? Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. And... Do you know the story? The rich young ruler walked away sad because he was so attached to his money. And Jesus didn't run after him. Wait, no, I'm just, I was just kidding. I was just being like extra radical just to, you know, because I know they're recording this stuff for the scriptures. <laughs> you know, he didn't run after him. He just let him go. He let him go. But, of course, we don't do that in our generation. You know, it's like, oh, if you have even just a sliver of interest in Jesus, we're just, oh, thank you for being here. Thank you for coming to our church. And, you know, we, we basically just do anything to get people in the doors and to keep them. Jesus would have a problem with that. I wonder how big Jesus' church would be if he was, like, here in the Northeast undercover. Just doing his work, just loving people, you know? Just loving people, just preaching the gospel, just caring for people. I wouldn't be surprised if it was, if it would be a small, a small thing. Because the tolerance for the real words of Jesus 
is getting very low. And this, of course, was predicted in the Bible, isn't it? That in the end of the age, here we are 2,000 years later, <clears throat> that people would not put up with sound teaching. They don't want the full message of the gospel. They don't, certainly don't want to hear about the prophets. <clears throat> they don't want to hear about judgment. Don't want to hear about sin or hell or anything like that. They just want to hear like smooth things and nice things. And so that's kind of what, what we have today. Anyways, back to my point of we need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do the mission. Isn't it true? Like, how are we going to do this without that spirit in us? We need it. Desperately need it. I need it. I need it regularly. I've prayed through the years probably more than any other thing. God, I need you. 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 I need. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to affect people's hearts. And I know I'm a, I'm a minister, so I you know, kind of have this responsibility of getting up once in a while and speaking things. And it's like such a fear. I don't want to get up and speak things that just go, bloop, fall to the ground. Or you guys are like, oh, wow, that was so funny. Or that was so animated. Or like it's a performance, right? That's what they did with John the Baptist. They were like, oh, this guy's, this guy's entertaining, you know? I don't want that. I want my words to penetrate hearts. I can't do that. I can't make my words do that. No matter how hard I prepare or think it through or think how I'm going to articulate it. This is what Paul said in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, didn't he, right? When he said, I, when I came to you, I determined that I was going to preach nothing but Christ in him crucified. I mean, Paul said, I, this is the great apostle Paul. I came to you with weakness and fear and trembling when I brought to you this message of the gospel. And I didn't come with eloquence or the power of persuasion, but I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And he said that more than once, that when I came to you, I didn't come with word only, but with deep conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's only the power of the Holy Spirit that can change your friends and change your family members and change this city. We're not going to turn this city upside down apart from the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And again, well, don't we already have the Holy Spirit? Yeah, we're regenerated, right? We have, yeah, I know we have it, but how much is manifesting in us? How, how saturated are we? You know, if we... Think about, um, you know, like what, you know, is it a Dixie cup, as I used to say, you know, of the Holy Spirit? How much do we have? Are we a fountain of living water or are we just this trickling thing that is so trickling that people don't even notice it? Or are we a river of life in a desolate city like Providence? I want to be a river of life. So how do we do it? Well, let's go back to Jesus. He said, wait until. And again, this wasn't a one-time thing that, you know, they waited for 10 days and on the day of Pentecost, which you can read about in chapter 2, the power of the Holy Spirit falls and they're filled with the Spirit and then they never had to pray again because they were filled. No, in chapter 4, they're like going back, God, we need you. You know, like grant us power, grant us boldness to, to be able to speak your word, stretch forth your hand, do signs and wonders and miracles. We need you, God. In chapter four, it's two chapters later. It was like days later. And you see this pattern throughout the New Testament. They're coming constantly. They're devoting themselves to prayer. They're devoting themselves to fresh outpourings and fresh baptisms of the Holy Spirit. I mean, all through Paul's theology, this is what it is. Paul's writing to believers who have the Holy Spirit in their life. And he's saying things like, oh, I'm praying for you, that, that your eyes would be open, that you would know the depth and the width and the height of God's great love, that, that, that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. That the power of God would be manifested in your life. That's Ephesians chapter 1. He's saying this about Christians. 
I mean, Philippians 3 is incredible. Just read through Philippians 3, and there's such a hunger. Paul's like, I I just, I want to know him. You know, I want to know the surpassing greatness of Christ Jesus. Everything else is rubbish, Paul was saying. Oh, I'm forgetting what is beyond. I'm straining towards, toward what is ahead. And then Paul, in kind of his older years, says, look, I have not attained. I have not attained. I have not arrived. It's some level of the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. No, Paul's like, I haven't attained. I, this one thing I do, I'm forgetting what is behind. I'm straining toward what is ahead. I'm seeking. I'm trying to lay hold of Christ. That's my paraphrase, but you can read it in Philippians 3. There's a hunger there. There's no smugness. There's no, I'm the great apostle Paul, and I have this measure of the anointing. No, I think Paul sometimes woke up empty. You know, some, some, some of you who are newer believers... You, you kind of have that idea. Oh, wow, once I'm, uh, you know, 20 years old in God, it's going to be amazing because it's just like you just float. You just wake up in the power of the Holy Spirit like every day, and it just gets deeper and deeper. Okay, anybody who's been walking with God for a while knows that that is not true. Like you wake up some days and you're like, where is God He left me. (laughs) You feel like that. You feel dry. You feel depleted. You feel empty. God knows what he's doing. This is exactly what he, why does he do that? I mean, some of you might think, well, if I were God, I would just fill them with so much of the spirit that they wouldn't even need to come back for more, right? But I don't know, maybe we couldn't handle that. Maybe that would cause us to be proud or think that we're something. God has a way of keeping us humble, doesn't he? He keeps us dependent on him. I mean, even Paul said that. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, says, you know the things that we suffered in Asia, how we were pressed beyond measure. Like we despaired of our life. We thought we were going to die. But he says, but these things happened. So that we might trust in the Lord and not depend on ourselves. That's always the great lesson of God, isn't it? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And we think, oh, we got it now. We're we're really getting it. We're really getting the power down. We're getting this. We we know what we're doing. You know, no, we you never get you never arrive. If you really want to grow in Christ, learn to depend on God like a child. And so in closing, yeah, what do we need to do? We need to hunger and thirst for him. We need to do what they did. They went to the upper room. We don't need to do exactly this, but they went to the upper room and they joined together and they just cried out to the Lord. And they they prayed day and night. This is the way. It's the only way. You can read all the great revivals throughout history. I know there's clever things going on today, but from the start, this is the way of Jesus. This is the strategy of Jesus. If you want to do the mission of God, like the real mission of turning people around, reconciling people to God, not just getting them to come around the church for a while or getting them to read a book or whatever. I'm talking about deep conversions. How are you going to do that? This is the way. This is the strategy of Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit. Be baptized with the Spirit. And it comes through hunger. It comes through desperation. It comes through getting low. You know, sometimes we get so low, we get so broken, we get so we feel so weak. It feels like, why why am I here? God knows exactly what he's doing. He needs to get us low in order for the water to fill us. It's desperation. It's hunger. 
It's thirst. It's repentance. It's dealing with your junk, dealing with your sin, just putting it all, just surrendering. It's all these things. It's the fear of the Lord. It's trembling. It's persistence. You know, sometimes we're like, man, I went there. I was hungering. I was thirsting. I was crying out to God. I was like seeking for like a whole day. And nothing happened. A day? Well, they spent 10 days in the upper room. And there's no math to this. It's not like, oh, if I do it for 10 days, the 10th day, it's going to happen. It's going to happen when it's going to happen. So you have to have a mindset of like just praying until. And so my challenge to us in this place is let's go after God for his touch. When's the last time you have been touched by God? You know what I mean, just an encounter with him. The filling of the spirit, that baptism of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. I've always said, I'm super shy, right? Our whole family is shy. Well, Tiffany's not too shy. She's shy too, yeah, okay. She's private. <laughs> Maddie's a little shy. Taylor's a little shy. I'm a little shy. We all have our moments of like we can not be shy. But how do you do this thing? Like how do you go into all the world and preach the God? All I know is I can't do it myself. I feel like if I go out and I'm with people, I feel like I'm not going to say anything about Jesus because it feels like I'm invading their space. They probably don't want to hear anything about Jesus or the gospel because nobody does, it seems like, these days. Like, this, this is me, okay? This is the shy me. I'm going to just, like, be polite, and I don't want to, like, offend anybody, and I don't want to you know, invade people's spaces or anything like that. But there is something that happens when I am drenched with the Holy Spirit. It just comes out. Right? It it just comes out. And it is not obnoxious. It comes out natural. It comes, you can't not, it just, just flows out of you. So listen, don't rely on your own winsomeness to try to talk to people about Jesus. Here's the strategy. Chapter one, be filled with the Spirit. And you'll find in your own quirky, unique, wonderful personality, the fragrance of Jesus will come through and you will find people being affected by that and drawn to Christ by that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Maybe we should we close in prayer? That'd be good, right? Let's, uh, let's stand up and, and cry out to the Lord for a moment. Father, we just, we hunger and thirst for you. Lord, we need you. Uh, We cry out to you for a fresh baptism of power. Lord, we acknowledge that we cannot do this. We acknowledge we cannot do the mission of God. Lord, people are too disinterested. They're too darkened. They're they're just too hardened. It's hard to even bring it up sometimes to people. But Lord, we cry out for a fresh touch of your Holy Spirit upon our lives that we could be the fragrance of Jesus everywhere we go with our love, with our hospitality, with our kindness, with our listening ear, with our generosity, with everything that we do. Lord, I pray that our words would not fall to the ground. Now, I'm, not, I'm not talking about just preaching, but even when, we, when somebody asks us a question or asks us about the hope that we have in Jesus or why we became Christians or we have an opportunity to share our story, I pray that our words would flow out of a deep conviction, that our words would not fall to the ground, but our words would, would, would just be like fire. Think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus when Jesus was talking with them. And afterward, they said, didn't his words burn like fire in your heart? Lord, I pray that our words 
in the workplace, around the family table, amongst our friends, on the basketball court, wherever we are. And not obnoxious, not too many words, but just the right amount of words at the right time. The perfect words from you. We pray that those words would have fire and effect in people's lives. Lord, use us this year to turn people around, to reconcile people to Christ. Use us, Lord. And we pray this in in your wonderful name. Amen. 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 Thanks for listening.